2: Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese, I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Chandran Kukathas. Chandran is the Lee Kong Chian Professor of Political Science and the Dean of the School of Social Sciences at Singapore Management University. His research engages with central questions in social and political philosophy, including questions regarding toleration, multiculturalism, political authority, and social justice. His new book has just been published with Princeton University Press. It's titled Immigration and Freedom. Now, discussions of the ethics and the politics of immigration tend to focus on those seeking entry into a new society. We ask whether a country has the right to exclude those who would like to relocate within it. We explore the moral implications of more or less restrictive policies concerning immigration, often with a view towards the plight of the immigrants or refugees and the perils of their statelessness. These are, of course, important questions. But Kukathus asks us also to examine the ways in which a state's immigration policies are exertions of control over its domestic population. It's often overlooked that a state's exercise of its supposed right to exclude always involves the exercise of power over its own citizens. So we should ask, are these exercises justifiable? Moreover, The entire issue is inevitably couched in concepts like citizen, native, domestic, foreign, immigrant, border, and sovereignty. But these concepts are notoriously slippery. So as usual, we have a lot to talk about, a full slate as it were. But why don't we begin as we normally do with our guest. Hello, Chandran, how are you? Hi, Bob. Good to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, so the book is really fantastic, but before we get to talking about immigration and freedom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I'm an immigrant, uh, quite obviously in a way, because uh, I'm here in, in Singapore. I was, I was born in Malaysia, uh, ended up in Australia where I became a citizen after 15 years or so, and uh, have been a citizen of Australia for... I guess about 40 years, but since uh, my time in Australia, I've lived in the United States, in uh, the UK. I was professor of uh, political theory at the London School of Economics, and then I moved to Singapore about two years ago. So uh, I guess that's a pretty important part of my um, my, my persona. Uh, I uh, also grew up in a in a family of, uh, of immigrants in a way because my grandparents all were immigrants from sri lanka from, from where jaffna tamils so yeah um, i guess immigration has been uh, a big part of my life in a very in a very practical uh, sense
2: fabulous um and am i am i remembering correctly that when you your time in the states you were in the the midwest is that right uh, i was uh, in the west i was professor uh, right. of
1: political theory at the university of utah mm-hmm. and uh, um yeah i've i've lived actually all around the, uh, the us over the years because i've had various visiting fellowships to right. universities in in indiana in uh, in ohio in virginia and then i spent a lot of time traveling around uh, teaching and lecturing in, you know, in different parts of uh, the world, including Vanderbilt, as you will recall. <laughs>
2: that's right. That's right. Um, so great. Well, let's let's dig into the book, which, um, you know, I, I found a, a real eye-opener in lots of respects. But, um, you know, I usually begin these interviews by um, asking a first question about the methodology or the, you know, the, the, the big picture that got the author into the topic. I'm going to sort of switch gears a little bit here. I want to begin, with the end of the book if that's okay um so i found your epilogue um you know kind of moving (laughs) um and so it was both a way i thought that it set up all of the philosophical issues um in a really vivid way um but then it also i thought um sort of encapsulated um some of the conclusions that that you draw so um, you know the epilogue is uh, a, 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 a short reflection as it were on um, a, it's an, a, it, it's asking us to imagine um, what it would be like if one needed a visa to fall in love um, can you tell us a little bit about that yes uh,
1: it's a it's a poem that I I wrote um, in a In a period just after I had applied for permanent residence in the UK, I had been there for five years as professor of political theory, and uh, I'd been there on what was then called a work permit. That category no longer exists. But the UK had just brought in a requirement that anyone seeking permanent residence or citizenship take a life in the UK test this was a series of questions that you that you had to to answer they supply you with a little booklet and essentially you've got to memorize the the answers to this now the questions were in a sense uh, a little bizarre because although there were some obvious questions that might be asked about um, the united kingdom to see whether you knew something about life there what kind of political system it had, um, something a little little bit about its history, perhaps. Um, But this was full of questions about things like the sociology of the United Kingdom, questions like uh, what proportion of the country is made up of this ethnic group, or questions like um, what what time of year does the school year begin in Northern Ireland Um, What time does does the school year begin in Scotland? There there were all kinds of very, very bizarre questions that you had to answer in order to become eligible, um, if you pass the test, for permanent residence or, as it was called there, indefinite leave to remain in the UK. I was very struck by this. Um, Shortly after I'd taken the test, um, a friend of mine who'd been in the UK for more than 10 years was applying for permanent residence herself and she was stuck out in the united states unable to return um, and just waiting for uh, authorization and uh, uh it just struck me at that time that this was really kind of bizarre that you know she was stuck out there and i'd just taken this this test so um, that, that's when I, when I wrote the poem. And uh, over the years that followed, I shared it with a few people who, who commented on it and said <clears throat> things like, well, you know, you should really say something, for example, about uh, the legal aspects uh, of this. So, you know, I, I tinkered with it uh, over, a, over a few years. And uh, someone then said to me, actually a colleague in, uh, in London said, you know, you should really you know put this in your book, and I I am denied about it for a while because it's obviously not usual to begin or end uh, a, a work of philosophy with a piece of poetry, especially you know, one's own poetry. But I just thought, okay, I'll try it, and Princeton were fine, so that's how it uh, how it ended up there. But it was it was a very heartfelt uh, set of reflections on you know on all the things that go on when you're subject to immigration control, and I try to express this by, you know, drawing attention to the incongruity of it all by imagining whether, you know, what it would be like if you needed to get a visa to do something that we all take for granted, uh, which is to fall in love. Just as in a different world, we might have taken for granted the the freedom to, to move to another place.
2: Right. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's evocative in all kinds of ways. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you, uh, decided to share it. Um, you know, there is, a, there's a reality show in the States. I don't know if, if you, uh, are familiar with it called 90 day fiance. Um, I don't know that. Oh, it's, it's a reality show about couples. Um, uh, one of, you know, one person in the couple will be an American citizen and they, um, Uh, Have fallen in love with um, somebody who is not an American citizen, usually on vacation or, you know, and the reality show is um, a reality show about them having 90 days where they can bring the spouse into the United States and decide whether to get married or not. <laughs> and it's, it's in lots of ways as ridiculous as it sounds. But, um, you know, since reading your book, you know, I've been sort of thinking about, you know, how, um, you know, this, um, this, this piece of pretty tawdry, I should mention, uh, entertainment actually is philosophically um, very peculiar. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yes. laughs> that some, that this, that, that a state can come and say, you don't get to marry that person. Sorry, <laughs> you you couldn't make it happen in ninety days. So that person's going back to uh, you know the Czech Republic, and that's you know that's the yeah, end. Well, so this is
1: all too common an occurrence. I think I mentioned in my in my book that each year about uh, eighteen thousand people in the UK are denied the the freedom to unite or reunite with their spouse, um, largely on the grounds that they. Don't have sufficient funds or income to sponsor someone. So this is a, a rule that you know um, uh, creates a burden that falls disproportionately on people who are poor. You, you need to have an income of about eighteen thousand pounds a year, which you might think is not a lot, but actually most people don't make that much. Which is also right. something that's uh, quite eye-opening.
2: Sure. Um, so, great. Um, let's now go back to sort of, uh, you know, take take the book up at, at, at the beginning. Um, so, a central theme that runs throughout the book, and one of the concepts and ideas that gets introduced very early, is the idea that immigration policies are exercises of control. Um, and for that reason, they limit freedom. Um but you're keen, and I think you're rightfully keen, to point out that these policies limit freedom not only of those seeking entry into a, um, uh, a new nation or a new a new state or a new territory, um, but the policies also limit the freedom of those who are considered already to be members of the domestic population. So a large part of the argument of the book proceeds by way of a critical analysis of some of the conceptual materials with which this big thought about immigration, that there is a right to exclude or a right to control who's in and who's out. Um, So the argument is really these conceptual materials are not as sturdy as the way we um, deploy them might suggest. So why don't we begin there with... um, Uh, the idea uh, of things like the idea of an immigrant or the concept of a border. Uh, Early in the book, you list, you know, uh, it's got to be more than 10 attempts to define (laughs) what an immigrant is. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about how things get complicated, uh, even at this sort of abstract conceptual level so quickly? Yes.
1: um, Well, the the first... In a way, most obvious thing uh, is that the the definition of immigrant is uh, is a tricky matter because an immigrant is not um, someone with a particular set of characteristics that one might identify. Being an immigrant is being someone who falls into a particular legal category, and uh, in different countries, the the legal categories are identified differently. In fact, most countries don't have a definition of immigrant in the uk for example uh, in the law there's only the category of persons with the right to remain or the right of abode uh, in the united kingdom so an immigrant is something our is a term that's often invoked but there's no you no know, clear way of Determining whether someone is an immigrant or not an immigrant for for example the United Nations defines an immigrant as someone outside his or her country of nationality for uh, 12 months or longer, but You can immediately ask well, why 12 months? There's nothing special about 12 months It's just an arbitrary stopping point if you made it six months then we'd have a lot more immigrants in the world And if you made it six days most tourists would be would be immigrants in one sense or another but if you made it five years, uh, then there'd be many fewer people who'd be categorised as immigrants. I think most people think of an immigrant as someone who's actually, um, you know, moving to to settle in in a country. But when it comes to immigration control, it's something that uh, affects people who move, you know, more more generally. And so the law tries to. Um, to categorize people in order to establish their 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 rights of uh, of movement. But in a way the the reason why there is this sort of control is that there's a concern to protect the interests of natives or nationals over the interests of uh, of immigrants. This is how the defense of such measures is usually couched. But here the the other side of the definitional problem is uh, the notion of a native or a national because just as the the definition of an immigrant is simply an arbitrary matter, so is the definition of a native or a national because this also turns out to be uh, a legal category and states at various times have decided that some people are or are not nationals? Let, let me give you an example of this. This is a slightly dramatic one in a way, but uh, I think you'll see that it actually has um, equivalents in in other parts. And this is the case of the the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Now, by the end of the Second World War, um, Britain had an empire that encompassed um, more than 800 million. People all around the world, people who were obliged to pay taxes, who were subject to um, military service in some cases, who um, were in various ways simply ruled by Britain. But at this time, they were also regarded um, by Britain as British subjects. They had, in principle, the right to travel <clears throat> anywhere within the empire, although some countries within the empire, like Australia and South Africa, could. Uh, managed their own internal immigration policy, so excluded people from the empire from traveling there. But but all these people were British subjects. They, they were British nationals. To put it very simply, they were, in fact, British. Uh, even a politician like Enoch Powell, who was notorious in the 1960s for his wish to limit immigration to the United Kingdom, said that right now it was not actually possible legally because all of these peoples were British subjects and had the legal right to, to move to Britain and, and, and had all of the, uh, uh, the rights that anyone in Britain had. As, a, um, as it happened, over the next 15 to 30 years, the rights of all these British nationals outside of the British Isles had their nationality progressively stripped away from them. The beginning Mm. of this really was the um, uh, the move in 1971 to redefine nationality, to exclude Africans, or more specifically uh, Africans of uh, Indian descent who were um, under threat of deportation in places like Kenya and Uganda. And the British authorities didn't want this to, to happen, didn't want them to be uh, likely to, to move to the UK. So they essentially stripped people of this nationality. Uh, and this brings me to my more general point, really, that the, the beginning of immigration control is, in fact, classification. You classify people as immigrants or nationals. And over the years, nations have had different sorts of definitions. immigrants and different sorts of rules uh, for how to count people as natives or nationals to give you a different set of examples in Mm -hmm. the united states um, as many of your listeners would know for a long time people of african descent could not be american citizens because there was uh, there was a color test if you were not white you could not be uh, an immigrant this led to especially in the 20th century many disputes about what counted or who counted as white. The Supreme Court at various stages ruled, for example, that people uh, from one part of India um, would not count as white, Punjabis, for example, but people from other parts, uh, maybe because of their appearance, would count as Mm. white. Syrians would count as white after an appeal was made um, by a man called George Dow. At this time, uh, in the early 20th century, a woman... Native-born, though she might have been to the white American parents, if she married a foreigner, would lose her nationality. She would uh, be stripped of her American uh, citizenship because the the definition of nationality required um, a certain kind of um, uh, you know um, story about your about your origins and your background. So. The, the definition of, uh, of an immigrant is just the other side of the definition of a native or of a national, and there's nothing natural about this. So if we think that the point of immigration control is to protect the interests of natives um, against the interests of, uh, of, of, of immigrants, um, it's worth bearing in mind that You know, a lot of this happens as a result of attempts to define people in a particular way, to define them as immigrants. And this obviously leads to another very important thought, which is that um, immigration control really is a way of uh, controlling people. And the outcome (laughs) is dependent in a way on who has the power whether individually or collectively, to determine um, the, the, the nature or the, the definition and then the fates of their, of their fellow citizens.
2: Right. So can I just ask a quick question, which is um, sort of about international issues? So if not only um, are these concepts sort of slippery and, um, you know, they're not tracking natural, you know, natural kinds. They're not cutting nature at its joints as it were. Um, but if there's also sort of, um, some disarray, um, between different States in how to categorize people, um, just, this is just a sort of, maybe just an empirical question. Um, How easy is it to just be stateless because, you know, you meet somebody's character, you meet some state's um, definition of what it is to be an immigrant, and you don't meet the other state's definition of what it is to be a native? Um, Well, this obviously does happen
1: um, around the world to to varying degrees. There are people who are literally stateless. And and this is um, obviously a very terrible position to be in because it means you're essentially deprived um, of all kinds of rights. In, in, her, in Hannah Arendt's terms, you, you don't have the right to have rights. Right. And, um, you know, in a different era, that mightn't have been so so difficult because not having um, you know, a state you can call yourself a member of did not necessarily preclude you from, from moving, from traveling, from settling and so on. But in the era of immigration control which really is uh, something that has emerged with the development of the nation state and become strengthened uh, as the state has become more important it's becoming less and less um, easy or even possible to do anything without state membership you can't move anywhere without papers or a passport um Fortunately, there's a small number of people who are caught in this uh, situation. But, you know, for those people, that's not a a trivial matter.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Right. So um, the next step of the argument then looks at the the idea of control and border control and controlling or securing the borders. Um, the idea uh, or the, the sort of thrust of the argument is that um, although it's... It, It's common, especially these days in the States, to hear people talk about immigration policies as a way of securing, uh, uh, protecting um, regions of physical space, right? Um, Part of your argument is that um, these are actually ways of controlling people. They're not ways of, you know, they're not at least um, uh, uh, in the first instance sort of so focused on on physical um locations because borders shift and change and are blurry and uh and the rest um as you aptly put it you say it's difficult to control some people without controlling others uh can you tell us more about that yes it it, uh, it really struck me
1: when i was teaching at the at the lse and uh, as immigration controls became stricter as government started to target various sorts of uh, categories of people who might they feared be violating immigration regulations. Um, They started to make impositions upon us as academics to to make sure that the students that we would had, particularly overseas students, were in fact properly monitored so that um, they weren't in some way in violation of their visa. Consequently, um, we were under pressure to um, do things like take attendance, uh, have students and overseas faculty report to the department. um, And we had to report this to the Home Office to indicate that we were in fact ourselves um, being vigilant about Immigration control. So this was, you know, costly both in uh, in resources um, and in and in time. Uh, and of course, it also <clears throat> put us in a certain amount of jeopardy because if we did not um, comply with this, then you know the LSE would be in danger of uh, losing um, something like its educational license or its freedom to admit uh, other overseas students. Uh, And in some cases, universities were in fact uh, shut down because they hadn't been closely monitoring uh, their students. And uh, what occurred to me then is that these controls actually were as much controls on us as they were on on students. And in fact, they they fell most heavily on people within the society uh, rather than on those who were outside because those who were refused permission to enter faced a a one-off set of uh, restrictions and then had to go about their business about their lives um, just outside of the uk but for us this meant continual monitoring and surveillance to make sure that we were in fact um, compliant and it then dawned upon me that actually most of immigration control is not border control is not about trying to stop people crossing the border, although that's a part of it. Most of it is actually about trying to make sure that people who did cross the border didn't do things that the authorities didn't want them to do. Mostly this was, they didn't want them to enter the labor market, that is to say they didn't want to take jobs. Um, They also didn't want them to do things like enroll in a college or uh, rent a home or open a bank account or stay longer than they, they wanted. Um, and immigration controls were, for the most part, attempts to limit uh, what these people did once they crossed the borders. Governments want people coming in as tourists and spending money, but they don't necessarily want them to be doing anything else without, uh, without permission. Uh, and in order to control this, it becomes almost impossible unless you control your own citizens and right. residents because if you don't they're very likely to trade with uh, you know outsiders they're very likely to hire them or to enroll them in college or to rent them a property or to you know to fall in love with them and uh, and marry them <clears throat> so all of these things have to be controlled if you're going to control immigration uh, and uh, you can't do this without controlling your own citizens because, you know, they're just all too likely to relate to people in very natural and uh, and human ways. Um, if you want a sense of this, just think about how people feel now during the, the pandemic and uh, the way in which we become so conscious of the importance of, of human contact, of, uh, you know, close personal relationships you know built on actual physical you know propinquity Mm -hmm. um that also suggests that you know it's going to be very very unlikely that anyone coming into a country is going to be just isolated the natural thing for people to do is in fact to relate to befriend um, associate in all kinds of ways some of them not really legal or appropriate but still in all kinds of ways with uh, with outsiders so much so that it actually becomes quite difficult to distinguish insiders from outsiders. So immigration control ultimately has to try to make these distinctions and has to try to monitor um, the behavior of people who are associating. And this will inevitably mean imposing all kinds of uh, restrictions or requirements on, uh, on your own citizens. And I think this is exactly what, uh, what you know, continues to happen.
2: Right. Yeah. And it just I mean, it does seem a little peculiar in, in, um, uh, in a way that's um, just an extension of what you've just been saying, that um, uh, the immigration policies um, were in, in the example you were just talking about, were then, you know, sort of the enforcement of the policies in part fell to the faculty. <laughs> Right, It's like in so far you're monitoring and reporting. That's just, you know, you, you're kind of you've kind of been enlisted as 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 a kind of cop. Right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to exaggerate
1: this, but to, to varying degrees, that is, in fact, uh, the case. And while it wasn't likely that I myself would be in trouble with the uh, with the political authorities if I didn't take attendance, I could be in trouble with the university. Um, right. if, I, if I didn't do this, because the university would be in trouble with the, uh, with the authorities if it didn't uh, do certain things. And, you know, with all these regulations, of course, they, they come and go because they're not only difficult for the university to enforce, but it's also difficult for the authorities to enforce this on the, the university. Right. And, you know, and there's a political cost to this, too. I mean, if they wanted to shut down the LSE, which is you know, not uh, something very likely... Um, you know, this would have all kinds of uh, of other effects as well. So it becomes a kind of game, which has a an unsavory aspect to it because it's not all a game that's uh, that's played in good faith by any of the parties, really.
2: Right, right, and it's it's it, you know, one of one of the game pieces, you know, the game pieces are at least in part, like, you know, people's lives. Yes, know? indeed. indeed. <laughs> Let's not forget. Um, so this might be a nice segue into, um, you know, sort of the next stage of the argument, um, because then you argue that sort of the more robust the immigration controls are in a particular state or um, uh, society, um you know, the more the values of a free society are threatened or jeopardized, um, particularly um, you think that um, robust immigration controls are threats to the equality within the society. Um, can you tell us how that argument works? Yeah. Well, one of the things I,
1: I'm keen to, to point out is the extent to which the pursuit of particular policy goals or outcomes uh, in a way, ratchets up the um, uh, the expectations and the, the the requirements. Because let's say you set a target of uh, reducing the number of net immigrants to a hundred thousand. I'm taking an example from the the UK when they found in a, in a particular year the, the immigrant the net, net net migration had gone up to three hundred thousand uh, people uh, in the year. So they. That the government promised that they would reduce this to 100,000 now this means that uh, in order to achieve the target they've got to you know require their their officials both at the higher level and at the at the street level to to find ways of achieving this this goal. The problem is that you can't achieve this goal just by you know setting the target because you've actually got to find ways then, of limiting the number of people who are um, coming into the country or who are taking on a a particular status. Now, the the problem here is that if people really want to come in, or or just as importantly, people within the country want others to join them, whether it's because they want them to be employed or whether they want them to join them as members of the family, they're going to find every way that they can to get what they want. University is going to you know, look for every legal avenue it, it can to employ the people that they need. Uh, families who want to be reunited or spouses or lovers who want their partners to come back will look for ways. And so what political authorities will, will need to do is just find some ways of excluding, if they're not making it, um, just by you know setting uh, setting a target you can do this for example by deporting people um, right. but this is difficult because all too often it's uh, uh, it's hard to and expensive to to actually engage in this it's it's costly both in resources and time to bring people before the courts to go through the process to give them the right of uh, of response and so on but if the target is really important then the temptation is going to be to find ways around this so let me give you an example from the united states Uh, between 1930 and uh, the start of uh, this century about one million american citizens were deported um, obviously by mistake uh, but nonetheless they were in fact deported and a large um, part of the reason for this is, at various stages, there was pressure to reduce the the numbers of uh, of immigrants in the countries, and so. the the governments of various states, as well as the federal government, initiated sweeps of neighborhoods where they thought uh, there might be illegal immigrants. And so, you know, in the course of this, a million people, mostly Mexicans over the 70 years, were simply, you know, deported to a country that they weren't citizens of. um, And in some cases, countries that they never visited, um, and there were people who were themselves American citizens of uh, of many generations. The, the reason for this is simply that, um, you know, often the authorities just assume that people living in a particular neighborhood who looked Mexican and who didn't have papers, and of course, if you're a citizen, why would you have anything to prove? Right. if you're just born there? So they would, uh, they would be deported. Um, and that's a lot of people. I mean, if you think about uh, that, and this is, you know, when two billion people were deported overall, but a million of them were American citizens, and just by the way, this continues to happen even today. I mean, there are literally thousands of American citizens who are deported by their own government uh, every year, and the same happens in the UK and in Australia and uh, in other countries of uh, of Europe. And it happens because it's costly to get the um, um, you know the the categories and the identities right, and if you're under pressure. To meet targets, then you're going to find ways around this. I mean, if you think about the United States, it supposedly has about 12 million so called illegal immigrants. It has the capacity, using the courts, the detention facilities, the police, and so on, to deport about 400,000 people a year. So that will take you 25 years to deport everyone if no one. Um, came in um, illegally. In order to, you know, reach any kind of meaningful target, therefore, people are going to be tempted to go around the law. Now, right. to go back to the to the start of your question, how does this bear on equality? Well, firstly, it means treating your citizens unequally. Most obviously, in the fact that people with a particular kind of appearance, or people without the appropriate uh, papers, or without the financial resources to resist um, these injustices they will be the ones who are disproportionately affected by this imperative to uh, control immigration so immigration control does fall disproportionately on a certain set of categories of uh, uh, of citizens so in this way it's something that really damages equality because Firstly, it treats people differently, depending mostly on their appearance or their wealth, and secondly, you know, it, it violates what we would you yes. know, regard as the, the rule of law, because there's a temptation to get around the law in order to achieve, um, you know, to, to achieve particular ends. So that's the, the first way in which immigration control really um, really shapes people's lives in a way that that violates equality. The other respect in which it it violates uh, equality is that uh, immigration control ultimately um, is control exercised by governments or authorities, which don't want to simply exclude everyone because all countries want immigrants for one reason or another. They They want people entering the labor market. They want people coming in when it's of value. Um, but once um, you know you do that, and you realize that you still need people, you're going to then have to be selective. And immigration right. generally, um, and immigration control tends to be selective. And all too often, it ends up being selective on the basis of a range of uh, considerations. Sometimes it's you know it's skill, but also very often it turns out that. Uh, what becomes important is you know your your racial uh, or your ethnic or your religious uh, background right. and to the right. extent that this is the case immigration control ends up essentially saying to some of the, uh, the citizens of the country we're prepared to let people from these parts of the world people uh, who are like some of us but not allow people who are from other parts of the world people who are like more like some of you um, and, uh, you know, this is essentially what immigration control has been like for the entire history of, uh, of immigration control. So it really means saying to um, your citizens, some of you are going to be treated in one way and others of you are going to be treated differently. It's going to mean treating your citizens uh, unequally. And right. uh, and that, I think, is something that's very serious from the point of view of countries like ours, liberal democracies that value um equality along uh, a number of different dimensions from um ethnicity to um to wealth and income um so i think it's it's very important to to keep this in mind immigration control is not something that's just neutral it never has been and i think it it really never can be
2: right right so very good so um I suspect that um, some of our listeners will be familiar with a a certain kind of um, ethical defense of immigration control, um, a kind of defense that's rooted in a claim about the cultural integrity of the society. Um, The thought here is that immigration. Uh, when it reaches a certain or surpasses a th- certain threshold, can dissolve the, the shared culture of a society, its traditions, its language, um, so on and so forth. And um, the normative uh, claim is that societies have a, a kind of right to preserve themselves, um, and this requires uh, or this uh, in, uh, allows them or permits them uh, to um uh, to control or to keep out outsiders, so the cultural integrity uh, uh, kind of argument provides the basis justific- basic justification uh, for immigration controls. Um, so you find this argument unpersuasive. Uh, can you tell us why? Yeah, um, maybe the way to to start
1: this is to reflect for a bit on the the very nature of the claim that's made, which is that we need to exclude people from our society because we want to protect our traditions or culture or or way of life and implicit in this uh, claim is that there is in fact a coherent we or our and that the people making these claims are authoritative spokesmen for this and have um both the right um, and the, the understanding to to say you know who we are, what our culture is, and uh, who does or does not count as uh, a suitable person to join this particular collective but, but in reality, given that at, you know at any time in countries like the United States or Australia or the UK, There are people who, in fact, want outsiders to join them, just as are those who want to exclude them. So the debate about whether to include or exclude on cultural or on other grounds is actually a debate among people within the society who have different views. That is to say, Hmm. some people want outsiders to come in um, and don't think that this is a a threat to our um, culture or way of life and those who think that the outsiders shouldn't come in. So it's a conflict within the society. Now, what this illustrates immediately is that people within the society don't agree on a number of fundamental things. Firstly, they don't agree on whether or not people should be, or particular people should be allowed in or should be excluded. But they also don't, in fact, agree on the the fundamental question of what is this? society this culture this shared way of life because for some of them it would be you know possibly even enhanced if we brought other people in Um, whereas for some people people coming in is uh, is a danger to something so anyone making the claim that we need to do this for the purpose of uh, um, of cultural integrity or cultural protection is making a claim that is disagreed with by a significant uh, proportion of uh, you know of uh, of the citizenry, <clears throat> but the the other thing to to bear in mind then is that um, it does require those making this argument to say something about what that culture in question is. Now, there are two kinds of ways you might uh, approach this. One would be to say, well, <clears throat> you know, the, the the culture in question. Is a um, you know is a very specific understanding of how one how one should live It may involve you know shared religious commitments it may involve uh, shared beliefs on a whole range of uh, um, of uh, you know of other ethical and uh, uh, normative matters and so on but this is not going to work if the society is itself quite diverse which is the case in Let's say the United Kingdom, where there are different religious traditions, different denominations of of, uh, of Christianity, but also other um, religions are prominent there: Muslims, Hindus, uh, people of the Jewish faith, and so on. So you'd have to say something to the effect that there is a culture, despite the fact that there are there is so much diversity. Uh, within it so it simply fi- flies in the uh, in the face of reality to say we have in fact a, a thick and shared um, you know set of cultural commitments on the other hand you could say no 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 it, we're not saying something as strong as that what we're saying is that what we have is a society that's still you know culturally diverse but which shares a um, you know a, a kind of way of life that includes all these other traditions and ethnicities and religions and so on. But if you do that, then it's very difficult to see how excluding people um, is going to um, be in any way necessary if outsiders themselves will simply be joining people um, who are themselves already diverse. So you're not going to change the, um, the, the the character of the country. If you wanted to say it's going to change the the balance, well, it's hard to know what exactly is the the end game here because so many things could change the balance including you know different rates of uh, uh, different rates of birth um, people's tendency to want to themselves migrate to other parts of the world um, people's inclination to um, you know um, welcome outsiders or intermarry so if you really want to try to control the cultural composition and keep it exactly as it is now there are all sorts of policies that you might want to engage in, which I think more citizens would uh, would find uh, troubling. So I think neither of these arguments really is, uh, you know, is sustainable. And attempting to control the the cultural shape of a society is uh, is a very very tricky matter. And of course, there is just the fact that. Over the um, you know the, the decades and the centuries, societies change to to varying degrees, not just because of migration, but because of uh, interaction in all kinds of other ways. I think one should pause to th- to, th- to consider the the whole idea that you're going to try to control the cultural composition of a of of a society. Um, that is a you know a very substantial undertaking, and uh, it's not clear that anybody is going to succeed in this. The, the most you can do is you can have some kind of, uh, of short term effect. But in the long term, you're always going to be at the mercy of the, the preferences that people actually have. So I think the, the cultural arguments in the end for me <clears throat> don't really stack up because firstly, you, you can't actually achieve the, the goals in question. But secondly, you, you can't even attempt to to reach those goals without infringing enormously on the the freedoms of your own citizens by preferring some of your of your citizens to others, um, without in fact trying to say something which your citizens may resist, which is to say what it is to be an Englishman or a Brit or an Australian or a Frenchman or an or an, or an American. Um, People have very, very different views about what this, is, what's, what these categories are, what these things mean, and to try to to settle the issue, I think, is a very dangerous thing to do.
2: Right, fabulous. So, you know, there's, um, there are uh, other issues that are taken up in in the book that uh, we're not going to have time to talk about, including uh, a really nice chapter on. Uh, the economics of immigration or economic arguments about immigration and also uh, a chapter about self-determination of states. I wanted to make sure though, since you've been so generous with your time, um, I want to make sure that I get to the, 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 the the way you formulate this sort of the big question that ends the book, um, in the final chapter. Um, well, you say something like, look, so, you know, if the arguments go through of the book, uh, I've shown that immigration controls um, constrain freedom for for everybody, not just for uh, would be immigrants, but for uh, uh, the 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 the, uh, the 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 home population. Um and you say, so it's still a question, though, why this should matter. You know, maybe on balance, it's a, uh, it's, it's a kind of infringement of freedom that's, that's worth it or that's justified, um, and that we, we shouldn't, in the end, maybe be so concerned about the ways in which immigration policies control us. Um, uh, so what's the answer? Why, why does this matter or why should it matter to us that we're controlled by our country's uh, immigration policy? Yeah, I think this is
1: a question that is surprisingly, I think, under discussed. Not just with respect to to immigration or immigration control, but with respect to the to the question of uh, of freedom more more generally. Why should we care about whether we're free? Why should we care about whether we're controlled? And and in in this book, what I I do try to do is to suggest that. One way to think about freedom is by thinking of it as not being controlled. Um, but then, the, that, then the obvious question is, as you've as you've noted, um, what's wrong with uh, with with being controlled? And indeed, one of the arguments I, you know, or the objections I persistently meet with is an argument which says. Look, we're, we're controlled in so many ways. We're used to being regulated and to being monitored. We're used to standing in queue. We're used to having to um, apply for permission in, uh, in all kinds of respects. This is just another way. Uh, why care about this? Uh, and ultimately, this means you know asking, why would one care about freedom? And I think this is, in some ways, not an easy... Question to answer because not everybody actually cares about freedom and certainly not everyone cares about it in the same way or to the same degree many people are willing to forsake some of their freedom or maybe even a lot of it for for other ends if you think about people who join the military they subject themselves Mm. to control by others if you go into the priesthood maybe become a um, become a, a monk or if you join certain corporations, you, you, you become limited in, uh, in various ways. So, you know, people don't all um, value freedom completely and to the exclusion of all other values. But what I want to try to say here is that, um, firstly, very few people don't value it at all. Um, and for many people, it is in fact um, something that's very, very valuable. And I want to say that it's something that we should um, cherish maybe more than we're inclined to, whether it's in theory or sometimes in our conduct. So the question is, well, why should we we care about it? Now, what I want to say in the book is that ultimately why we should care about uh, freedom is because it has a bearing on the kind of people we are or will become. Because if we don't care about this, then we have to accept uh, a whole range of uh, um, implications about um, about how we live and how we uh, and how we see ourselves. So if we if we're ready to accept a regime of control, we're going to have to become people who in a sense, become a different kind of person, people who are more ready to be um, obedient, to become compliant, to become accepting of uh, limitations on what we do. We're gonna have to become people who are ready to give up our independence, our autonomy, um, our capacity to just think for ourselves. And we have to become people who are more likely to simply accept things on faith, to accept things uh, uncritically. There's a further aspect to this, I think, which is also, I think, very important, and this is critical for the argument I want to make in my book. We have to become people who are ready to accept the control that is exercised over others and uh, become indifferent to it. We have to become people Who are willing to say about maybe even the most egregious abuses of other people that that's okay. And I think this kind of transformation of our our consciousness is a very important implication of our readiness to accept control over ourselves. We then become ready to accept the various ways in in which others are controlled and if i can give you a you know a more dramatic kind of example of this in many societies we see uh, immigrants and notably refugees who are treated very very poorly uh, not just because they're excluded but because they are uh, they are detained they're <coughs> put into uh, camps they're subject to um, all kinds of uh, treatment, which we would ordinarily say amounts to a a violation of human rights, because it involves, you know, causing them to suffer in ways that we would consider intolerable if we were, in fact, ourselves subject to this, subject to both, uh, you know, psychological distress and also physical distress. But over the years, you know, what governments have tried to do with respect to these sorts of cases is to assure the public that this is OK. You know, either these people are criminals or these people have just jumped the queue or, um, you know, this is something you don't need to worry about because it's all taken care of. And as time goes on, we tend to become just used to this. We tend to say, well, OK, that's fine if you know, we, we're ready to accept this um kind of injustice because we ourselves um have become in a way indifferent to to freedom Um, when you become indifferent to your own freedom it becomes very difficult to then really care about the the freedom of others and what this means ultimately is we become a kind of society where all of these things become acceptable um and this can only be the case if we are people of a certain kind. Uh, I don't want to go too far and say we'll just become like sheep, but you know that, in a way, gets at the the, the question uh, that you're asking. We become compliant. We become less independent. We become people who are just willing to be, you know, uh, to, willing to accept what we're told, uh, and we won't recognize it. Ultimately, what it will mean is that we will become so indifferent that we won't recognize that our freedom has been lost. Again, I don't want to, you know, to to over-exaggerate this because it's not that we're there now. But I I do fear that for some people, this is exactly what's happened. They've just become uh, indifferent. So the answer to the question, you know, um, why should we... um, why should we we care about this? Why should we uh, worry? The the answer is, uh, you will become a certain kind of uh, of person, and we will become a certain kind of society. And I want to say, is this really uh, is this really what you want? Is this really the kind of people that you um, or we want to be?
2: Well, that is, a, I find it deeply. Um, compelling answer, um, especially, um, given what seemed to be fairly, uh, I should I don't know if I tried to call them popular, but fairly common attitudes in the States about, um, uh, the ways in which over the past, uh, couple years now, um, immigrants who've been detained and, and, um, I think the right word is captured. Um, have been treated, (laughs) which uh, it seems as if um, uh, uh, there's a huge contingent uh, of American citizen that's okay with that kind of treatment of another uh, human being, even in the case of um, children uh, who can't, on anybody's account, be, you know, sort of uh, seen as the agent <laughs> of uh, uh th- that brought about their uh their circumstance. So that's a uh uh at least in my book a very uh compelling argument. But uh Chandran you've been you know really really generous. I really uh want to thank you uh for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. Uh it's been a real pleasure to talk about your book uh which is titled Immigration and Freedom. Um thank you Chandran for joining me. Thank you very much. Bob. it was a pleasure. My the pleasure was mine. Um, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, my guest has been Chandran Kukathas. His new book is uh, published with Princeton University Press, and I encourage you to go check it out. Uh, once more, the title is Immigration and Freedom. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.